On Tuesday, the 25th of February, which is a week from Tuesday, we have our Shrove Tuesday dinner. Now, I tell you this a lot, but it's, it is really important, particularly for those of us who were not raised in the liturgical church, as well as for others of us who were raised in liturg liturgical churches, but weren't taught properly what all the stuff's going on. So what is often known as Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, uh, has deteriorated through the years into a sort of a debauchery uh, a party where, I mean, I had Catholic friends grow up in Pittsburgh uh, who said, oh yeah, that's when you go out and you get all your sins out before Lent. No, 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 that's not the idea at all. Uh, that's what they do in New Orleans and some, you know, and I think uh, Leon is famous for maybe really making, turning something that was supposed to be for God into something uh, of the devil. And so that's not what it is. What Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras or Shrove Tuesday is about is the readings for, for Shrove Tuesday are all about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea is we would never dare or presume to go into a season of fasting without knowing that uh, the righteousness of which we are clinging to is from Jesus and it's not our own. All right, so the idea is we go into and, and we have this party. Now, it's hard to believe it, but in the old days, back in the medieval times, uh, even before that, uh, eggs, cream, butter, flour, those were luxury items. We don't think of a pancake supper being a luxury item. At least for me, I think of prime rib or, or uh, you know, a Kansas City bone-in ribeye or something like that. But in the old days, the luxuries were the cream and the, and the sugar, and all things that, things that pancakes sort of ate up. So they would blow all their eggs and everything, have a big party, have the pancake supper, and the idea is we're celebrating God's goodness. All right, his grace to us. And then, in light of that, then we do our best to fast and, and to create a space of emptiness that God might fill it. We can't make God fill us, but we can, with a humble and a contrite heart, come to him and in uh, turning from things, remember in the Bible, fasting is always about food. Perfectly fine if you're also going to do things like fast on the internet or from your laptop or your uh, you know, your phone or whatever it is, or th th FaceTime, you know, great, not FaceTime, Facebook, whatever it is, you're, all those are great things to, to give up for 40 days. But in the Bible, it's always food. So start with food. Uh, some years I was wild and crazy, and, you know, I always, my classic story where I made a big breakthrough is I gave up sugar in my coffee. That big breakthrough, yeah, I, I, I pretty much kept that, and I, I t honestly, when I got through, I felt like the Apostle Peter or Paul. I thought, I have really, I, it doesn't surprise you, Isaac, but I thought to myself, I am really a holy man. I cannot believe I did that. Um, I have graduated to more important things, perhaps. But uh, uh, it's, not, it's not good form to ask other people what they're giving up. Remember that we only publicly fast on Ash Wednesday because the Bible teaches that the people of God throughout history have been called for solemn assemblies where together Christians, uh, whether they're Presbyterian or Catholic or Baptist, where people who love Jesus come, and as the corporate people of God, we put on the ashes and we say, this world is not the world that Jesus wants it to be. And so as the people of God, we come confessing our sins and confessing our great need for a movement of God. And that's what Ash Wednesday is all about. Uh, so we do that at 7 p.m. on Ash Wednesday. A lot of churches uh, have them at noon. If, you, uh, if, if our church was downtown, at least when we, we've been here, what, 23, 24 years, something like that here at this location, we found that people couldn't get back here for lunch. So we do it late in the day in the sense that we do it at 7. Uh, but we encourage you to come. It's a very, uh, we go through the, uh, 
the penitential office for Ash Wednesday, uh, which we acknowledge uh, our sins and our great need of Jesus. Even as people who know him, we have a great need of more of the Lord. So the idea, again, I want you to think of Lent in a very positive way, in that we get to give up some things because God in his mercy and kindness is willing to bless us when we make the smallest effort to move towards him. I mean, can you imagine we'll fast some things and, and, and create a small place of emptiness? Ultimately, we, need, you know, we could never prepare ourselves for God properly, but, but in the smallest ways where we initiate a movement to God and turn from our sins and to ask him for help, God will visit us with his grace and the power of his spirit. And he'll help us and he'll change us. And that's really, really remarkable. So I want you to, you know, some people grew up and it was, um, you know, gloomy and all this stuff. Uh, to me, Lent is a serious time, a sober time, but it's a really good time. Every year, the Lord has met me with a kindness where I can see the Lord helping me grow and change. And, and I don't know about you, but I got a few more things on my list that need to grow and change. So uh, uh, every year, there are things uh, of which I'm seeking him for. Uh, there's, it's a great time, of course, to be praying uh, and to be seeking for our families, our marriages, our kids, uh, situations in our city, our state. I mean, there's just there's so much. Um, so I encourage you, invite you to a, a Holy Lent in that way. And so then, of course, on the 26th, the 25th is Shrove Tuesday. That's just a pancake dinner. There's no, I know you'll be upset that there's no sermon or anything like that. You just come and eat pancakes. As, the, as a church family, we do that. Uh, but I promise you, on Ash Wednesday, I will preach a sermon. So then you, you, you won't feel so bad knowing that it's coming on Ash Wednesday. So really excited time of year. Uh, and now we're in the pre-Lenten times. I didn't forget any other announcements, did I? All right, we're in pre-Lent. And as I mentioned previously, in some parts of the church, they didn't fast on Thursdays because that was where Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper. And in other parts in the early church, um, they also didn't fast on Monday. So there are all these different monasteries and things in the early church. And because of the limitations to make sure they got 40 days in, in some parts of the empire and in the, in, in the ancient world, they had to come all the way into last Monday to get 40 days of fasting in. All right, so Septuagesima, which was last Sunday, is roughly 70 days prior to uh, Easter, the, the Feast of the Resurrection. Uh, this week, loosely, Sexagesima is loosely, of course, not exactly, but we look at basically 60 days, and then... Let's see, it's a very smart, we're a university town, very smart group of people. So how far do you think Quinquagesima is from this smart group? 50, I know, I think it's college students, you're still learning math, that's all right. Um, so 50 roughly next week, and that's the idea. So, but that's all because of the way that these ancient monasteries and things didn't fast on Thursdays or Mondays and so the date had to be kept bringing back. So we're technically still in Epiphany and a pre-Lenten season. But if, it were, if we were celebrating Epiphany, it would be white. And so in that we're pre-Lenten, you can see that purple. So anyway, all right. So, uh-oh, yes. Two announcements. Oh, if, yeah, if you, oh, yeah, sorry. The big yellow, don't miss this announcement, sorry. <laughs> If you need your contribution statement, there is a sign-up in the back where you can put your name. Now, it's funny. In the past years, we print them all out, and everyone left them. This year, we don't have to print them out, and we got hundreds looking for their contribution statement. So, uh, so that's back. They can be emailed to you, but we're printing them out, whatever. But that's in the back. That was one. The second one is, 
there is a Sunday a sign up for the young family slash uh, I don't know if you call it young family. What do you call it? Cool people. The McCain Cool People Sunday night Bible study. Oh, that'll go. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. So that's the night. There's a sign up sheet for those who are interested in joining them. Uh, and uh, that sign up sheet is in the back as well. All right. Now, let's look at the collect today. You got all these notes. John Carl was at eight, my son, and he complained that I didn't really go over my notes. Uh, but we're going to, I'll try to mix here. But let's look at the collect. The idea here is we're asking God for a particular grace on this Sunday, asking for the grace to deal with adversity. All right? Now, adversity is, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things. And so in the parable of the sower, Jesus talked about one of the seeds, one of the reasons the seeds don't make it is because they're shallow. And when the hard days come, when difficulty comes, when sickness comes, when, when our prayers aren't answered, when it costs us something, people desert the Lord. That's one of the parts of the sower uh, that Father Carter read so, so well this morning. Uh, so let's look at the collect, that's the, and then we're going to look at what we have to look at in terms of 2 Corinthians. O Lord God, who seest that we put not our trust in anything that we do. Now, we do our best. This is not saying we don't... Listen, we love God, we worship Him, we serve Him, because he deserves nothing less than our best. But our best will never be good enough. Okay, and that doesn't say, oh, what's the point? No, no, we do it because he's worthy of worship. And we know by his grace that even when our best isn't good enough, his grace will fill in all the gaps. Uh, in his love and his kindness that he's provided in Jesus, all the grace, all the things we need will be there. So you can give your best even knowing that your best won't be enough because he reaches out. And, uh, and he blesses, and he'll let your best flourish uh, as you give that to him. And that's what he deserves. It's only, it's only the reasonable response uh, to a God who would love us so much in Jesus. So we don't put any trust in anything that we do. Mercifully grant that by thy power we may be defended in all adversity through Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of adversities? Well, the parable of the sower it talks about the, the heat of the day, trials, temptations, difficulties. Uh, and that's something that Paul went through a lot of. Now, the church and what we're focusing on this morning a little bit, we're going to look at the life of Paul. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this situation he was in. But let me get to the punchline and put this in your head. Part of how we make it is not comparing ourselves to other people in the good things. You can compare yourself to some of the bad, but, it, but it's the comparison of people that can cause us tremendous difficulty and make us unsatisfied instead of grateful for what we have. Uh, and that's part of this. Now, i got to tell you a couple of things about Roman history this morning. Um, so, again, there's maybe some people this morning that know Latin really well, and I don't. Uh, I did take Latin. Believe it or not, I got A's. That will scare you. Uh, but anyway, but what I didn't know, and we have some beer drinkers this morning who know this, but Corona means crown. Did you know that? Everyone knew that but me? Well, I didn't know that. So, so in the ancient world, so in, in, in the United States, the greatest... Uh, medal you can get for valor in the military services is the Congressional Medal of Honor. Correct? Yeah. The Medal of Honor, yeah. Then Congress gives it, the Medal of Honor. All right, and so uh, a lot of people who get that, of course, die because people who do uh, phenomenal things and great things, often they did them in such a way that they had to give their life to get that. And so uh, th that's the greatest thing. Well, in the Roman world, they were warriors, and their greatest honor that you could receive was not a medal, it was a crown, and it was called the Corona Muralis, like mur mural, 
Okay, and it's the crown of the wall is what it meant. And again, I'm probably not pronouncing Morales right, but, but that's, so the, the Corona Morales, which was the crown of the wall. Now, what is that all about? Well, in the ancient world, often what you had to do in a battle was you'd have a fortified city. And so you'd first you'd surround the city, you'd try to cut off the water and the food, uh, but maybe they had a well in the city or whatever, so that could take a while. But ultimately, you're going to have to breach the city. And the way they would have to breach the city typically, except for in Robin Hood meetings where there's, uh, Robin, Hood, Robin Hood movies where there's always a secret door left open, you know, very convenient. The Roman world, apparently, they're a little smarter than that, and they didn't have the little secret doors. Uh, instead, you had to get ladders and stuff, and you had to put them against there. And then, of course, when you're climbing up, you and your friends, the person simply pushes the ladder over, and, and you get hurt or die, right? Or they pour boiling oil on you, or they shoot arrows down on you, or any number of things. You can imagine that you probably wouldn't want to be the first guy going up the ladder, let alone who the Romans honored was, the person that got the corona moralis was, the person who was the first person to get up on the wall. Now, most of these people didn't make it. Because to be the first person, of course, the other, you know, the people in the fortified city have a bunch of soldiers up on the top of the wall, and you're the first one. But on the rare occasion when someone actually was the first one up and they lived, often they couldn't prove it. Uh, because, for example, there's other people on the ladder. So, so people would be disagreeing maybe, you know, well, Trey says he did, I say I did, you know, anyway. So once they figured out and someone had a legitimate case, they would go back to Rome. And they would apply for the corona moralis. And, and when they did this, uh, they would have to take an oath. And Paul takes an oath. This whole thing that he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes about all these things. The people that he was arguing with were people who were boasting that they had all the nice things. Paul says, I'll boast, but I'll tell you all the sufferings. He says, I've got a different kind of resume. And, and Paul's resume is a resume that, that nobody wants to have. He says, uh, you know, you want to prove you're so great, the Judaizers, these false teachers. He says, you're so great because you got the big jets and you got a lot of money and a big TV ministry. You know? and, and Paul says, hey, the way that you can count on me is that everything that you would think was good, I don't have. And all things you wouldn't want, that's what I have. The sincerity and the integrity of my ministry is that I have suffered in all these different ways. But that's the opposite way that anybody would think, just like me. Now, and I looked at that list, there's only one thing on the list that I've suffered, like Paul. I have suffered in the desert. Ken and I have now a badge, like a cup. <laughs> the bus burned in the desert. We were left in the desert. Now, probably he had it worse than we did. We, we did have a bottle of water, and I ate. Some of you wondered why I had a can of Pringles up here last week. I guess I was thinking, boy, he's, he's getting snacks now in the middle of service. No, uh, I, I, you're not going to believe this. I don't share my food, but I do share other people's food. And um, so Ken and I were there in, uh, in uh, N'Djamena later, uh, and then uh, there were people begging, if you take your money out, then, of course, they'll rob you. They'll, they'll wait for you to take your wallets. But you feel terrible because these are people who really are poor, meaning you'd like to give them whatever you have. If you could do that safely and there was a way to do it legitimately, you'd do it. But you're told, don't do that. That's not, how we, that's not how the Muslims or the Christians or anyone does it, so, so you don't. But we had one young boy uh, who was, had, uh, was missing a leg. And so Ken and I are walking, and we just had an exorbitant dinner. I think I had spaghetti bolognese, uh, and Ken had maybe a, some chicken, and, but it cost like 30 bucks. So that'd be like you know, several months' salary for a lot of people in, in Chad. So, we had this, so we're feeling a little bit guilty. 
Uh, Ken probably more than I was feeling guilty. But anyway, they were there. And, and we're walking, and this boy, and he is coming probably as far as maybe from that wall to this, and he's coming with us. I mean, there's just no way. Now, the problem is, I know I can't reach in and give him money, but I realized I had something that he would enjoy, and it was Ken's Pringles. So I found that I don't mind feeding the poor if I can give away Ken's stuff. And so uh, I gave those Pringles, and then... Ken reminded me, or someone reminded me, that you're supposed to give back seven times what you stole. So he's got the first deposit of the seven cans that I owe him. But anyway, that's why the Pringles were up here for me to give them back. Paul went through terrible, terrible, terrible things. And he said, it's not surprising in essence, that a religion that's founded by a man who dies on the cross, who is repudiated by his friends and his family, even his closest friends and disciples turn their back on him in the worst times. It's not surprising, Paul says, that a legitimate apostle has nothing but bad things and not glorious things. All right, and so if you look at your notes, it's all about glory. Paul's saying he's glorying in the cross and all the sufferings when everybody else. I mean, I will tell you, I sat there in the desert for a little bit thinking, if I was really anointed, I'd have one of those jets. You know, we hear about these TV evangelists and, and, and their $55 million jet's not good enough. They need a six because they don't want to stop in Paris to refuel. I'm thinking, Lord, I'll refuel in Paris on my jet. Paul's saying the people who a lot of people are impressed with, he's saying that's not what the gospel looks like and legitimate people look like. So Paul takes the oath at the very end. He says, I swear to the Lord Jesus Christ that what I say is true. I'll read it exactly in the text from the New Living. He's, that is the form of the statement that the people would have to say before God, to the gods in Rome to say, because again, no one could really prove who was the first person on the wall. So if you made that statement, you had to make an oath. All right. The other thing is Romans loved to tell everybody all the great things they did. And in their life and in their death, they liked to have legacy lists, not unlike the, how we might eulogize someone. So the Romans would say, the wealthy Romans would say, you know, served in the Senate from... You know, 1918, I mean, 2020, I mean, 2018 to 2020, uh, uh, you know, uh, was an uh, original supporter of the opera, uh, you know, uh, paid to help start the park, gave money over here for the, you know, and the Romans loved to have these things in their life. And of course, at their death, they loved having these legacy things written out. In fact, if you go to Italy and all the different museums, you'll find that wealthy and middle class and poor all like to do this for the, what they were able to do. I mean, they love people to remember that they did whatever it was that they were able to do in their life. All right, so Paul is taking these two things, the corona moralis, and he's saying, instead of a crown of, 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 of these great things, he's saying, uh, my lifestyle is the, is the crown of the corona Christi, it's the crown of Christ, and it's full of suffering and difficulties. And if we're not careful, we could misinterpret the pain and the heartache and the sicknesses that we experience and think it's a sign that something's wrong. And yet Paul would tell us that when you're walking with Jesus, uh, it's not surprising that our life has a lot of difficulty because our Savior shed his blood for us on the cross. And it's not a life where there was no pain and no heartache and no difficulty, no betrayals. That's not the life of Jesus. Paul says we need to recalculate. If we're going to go through adversity, we have to understand who it is that we're modeling our lives after. Now, we're not looking for trouble. But if you love Jesus, trouble will find you sure enough. It'll find you. But don't misinterpret that God has forsaken you, doesn't love you, doesn't like you. Uh, he loves you. He is giving you the honor to identify with him in his sufferings. Now, Paul, uh, there are, must be some others who suffered that much, but not many people could have. Remember, he would have been disfigured in the lashing. Um, 
I'm going to read this, but let me tell you two last things. The Jews in Deuteronomy 23, I believe, they were allowed to give 40 lashes. But if you gave someone 40 lashes and you did it too hard and they died, you could be, be responsible for their death. So if you gave someone 40 lashes and they lived, no problem. They deserved it in certain cases when they would whip them. But if they died, you were, you were considered culpable or responsible for their death and you would be tried for murder. Uh, in that case, or manslaughter, for doing it, you would go to jail, all right? So the practice of the Jews was to give 40 lashes, 40 lashes minus one. And the idea was just in case we didn't count right, we want to make sure uh, that we don't cross that threshold so that we can't be responsible if we whip someone like that. So Paul talks about numerous occasions he was whipped like that. Remember that when they whipped them like that, they would tear up all their backs and people... Not unlike the caning that happens in Saudi Arabia or Singapore, which kind of made it famous in the last 30 years, and in other countries, Malaysia, where they do the caning, not the whipping, but the caning. Uh, you, you know, it breaks all the blood vessels and all the muscles, meaning the people can't sit, stand, uh, or lay down for like three, two to three years. And they never recover in terms of their normal muscular ability in their back. Paul had this happen multiple times. He was stoned. Remember that they would throw the rocks at his face to leave him for dead. So he probably was missing a good bit of his teeth. His face, he didn't have plastic surgery. If Paul walked in, he would look so bad that we would want to look away physically. Probably didn't talk well, and maybe didn't talk well to begin with, but with all things that happened to him, he probably, his voice was very difficult to hear. All right, and so again, Paul says, here's my resume, the opposite of all the bragging and all the things the false teachers. Paul says, uh, you know who I am by my love for Jesus, and my willingness to do these things. Now, Paul didn't think he earned a gold star. He's simply saying, don't be deceived by these false teachers who are devouring you, taking all your money and doing all this stuff. He says, you know, look, this is what it looks like to be a true apostle. It looks like difficulty and pain. But anybody who reads that list and wants to be like that, something's wrong with you. I don't want to do those things, even having one small overlap. None of us want those things, but if God chose that we would be faithful in those things, all right? So let's look at the text this morning, and we'll make four quick comments, but uh, that should get you here. All right, remember the false teachers were bragging. They had all the credentials, all the right schools, all this stuff. Uh, Paul doesn't believe in bragging. That's not the way of Jesus. But the Corinthians were so stubborn that he brags, but again, he only brags about the things that would disqualify him to people who want it to be cool. You know, he's only, he's only saying the things that, you know, who wants to be with the apostle who suffered and died? And all this? That's not the guy you want to be with. Right? You want to be with the cool people, the wealthy people. So Paul brags, but only in a way that is ironic. He's not actually bragging. All right? Again, I say, don't think that I'm a fool to talk like this. But even if you do, listen to me as you would to a foolish person while I boast a little. Because their, their boasts were different than his, the, the false teachers. Such boasting is not from the Lord, but I'm acting like a fool. Because you like, he's saying, he's saying, you guys like listening to all these people that brag, uh, and they're fools to brag, because the righteous is about Jesus. But in this case, I'll play along. 18, and since others boast about their human achievements, I will too. How big their church is, how big their ministry, how much money, da 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 19, after all, you think you're so wise, but you enjoy putting up with fools. You put up with it when someone enslaves you. Now, how does someone enslave you? Uh, there's legalism. You know, I was raised in a Baptist church, and we made fun of the Catholics. All those Catholics got all those rules and their legalism and, and self-righteousness. And we, so we made fun of the Catholics. I'm sorry to tell you that. I've repented many times. But nonetheless, 
That's how I was raised. But we had a bunch of rules. We said, you know, the Bible, nothing but the Bible. But we had rules. At various times of my life, they didn't let people play cards. That was not in the Bible. Right? They, they, uh, they uh, no drinking, dancing. To this day, I'm still hindered by a childhood without dancing. Even at weddings. Susan and I actually were so embarrassed at the recent wedding, we said to ourselves, maybe we should go get a lesson. I don't know if it'll I know there's enough money for us to learn. But anyway, no drinking, dancing, smoking, chewing. Now, I'm not suggesting that those are all things you want to do, but they're not a sin. Everything that isn't wise isn't necessarily a sin. You know, and there's no verse that says, don't hit yourself in the head with a hammer. Okay? It's not a sin to do so, it's just not real smart. All right, so, so you're supposed to figure some things out. All right, you're supposed to make some choices. All right, but so these people came, and they came, and they taught us self-righteousness, and they taught a bunch of rules, and when the people didn't do it, they judged them by not doing that. Now, I've been in Anglican churches that have their own versions of that. I've literally been in Oxford where people, where if they didn't put their hands exactly right and bow exactly right and, and do it a certain way, as if there's only one way, they look down upon you. Susie likes to tease about this one particular priest uh, at Pusey House, you know, what, 30 years ago or something, a very high church place. Uh, if you didn't do it right, he seemed to like to knock you in your teeth with the chalice. He was kind of rough with you, no kidding. Uh, and and uh, it, it, it sort of, they would sort of put us down because we were newbies and we didn't know. And we were, we were thrilled to learn about communion, these things, but, but we didn't know how to do it the right way. Listen, the only way to do communion is coming with your heart. Okay? Uh, you know, some people come, they snatch the wafer. You know, hey, we, we prefer you don't do that, but, but I'm not going to complain about that. What we want is you to come in faith, trusting that God is going to meet you by the power of the Holy Spirit and nourish you in Christ. That's what we want you to do. So if you can't kneel, no one's going to care. If you put your hands wrong, as if there's only one way there isn't, no one's going to care. Not in this church. All right? But come with a heart that says, Lord, I really need you. Feed me, Lord, with yourself. That's what we want you to do. All right? So they were legalists, and they enslaved him with all these rules that Jesus didn't have. Uh, secondly, he says, they want to enslave you. Then they, I think he says that you want to endow, uh, devour you in the New King James. What's it say here? It says, uh, it says uh, you put up with it, someone enslaves you, takes everything you have. Now, in uh, the New King James, the King, it says devour you. I have been in some places where I wonder, they took three or four offerings. People who are very, very wealthy, they came to minister, but they took so much money out of people, and they manipulated people in the sense that you got the feeling, if I give a big offering, I'm going to get healed. And if I give a, you know, maybe if I give a small offering, there's not a big a chance. When I travel around the world, I freak some of my Pentecostal friends out because I refuse to take an offering when we do a healing service. And I'm not saying you can never do it. But I'm so uncomfortable with the idea of making it feel like the money is somehow connected to the grace of God to heal that I literally, as my practice, I don't do that. Uh, now, I may get in a situation where I'm not in control, but when I'm asked, I, I say, no, I don't want to do anything like that. I never want to tie money to that. But there's people who I've been in just taking more and more and more. And we know that they're living lifestyles that are... Uh, look, I don't mind if someone writes a bunch of books. I don't think it's wrong for Joel Osteen, for example. He makes a lot of money. But he makes almost no money from his church. And I'm not talking about his theology. Now. I'm just talking about... That's, it's different if you wrote a piece of music or you write songs or you write a book. I, to me, that's not the same thing as fleecing people with all kinds of offerings and things that make people feel guilty or, or making it sound like it's a pyramid scheme. 
You know, like you get to, you know, you're going to give, if, if you give because you think God's going to, you know, get inside of selfish motivation, it ain't going to happen. That's not going to work. It's not healthy. There was false teachers then and there's false teachers now. Someone who enslaves you takes everything you have, takes advantage of you. These people in Corinth were, most of them had been slaves. So they were willing to let people take advantage of them. And, and Paul said, it's not right. That's not how people should treat you. And if they take control of everything and slap you in the face. Some of these people actually, it's recorded that they would physically beat someone up who confessed a sin. Now, in the apostolic canons, which are from the 3rd and the 4th century, that they believe date back to the apostles, in uh, canon number 27, I wrote it out for you because I thought it was fascinating. Um, and God forbid, you, you don't have it in your notes, sorry. I have eight pages, you have two pages. All right, sorry. Uh, but it's easy to find. If you just look under the ecclesiastical canons of the Holy Apostles, 3rd and 4th century, it'll be easy to find it. Uh, this is what it says, point number 27. If a bishop, presbyter, or priest, or deacon shall strike any of the faithful who have sinned or any of the unbelievers who have done wrong with the intention of frightening them, we command that he be deposed, completely removed, worse than excommunication. Excommunication, you come back. This is to completely remove them, to, to depose them. For our Lord has by no means taught us to do so, but on the contrary, when he was smitten, he smote not again. And when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. All right? So they actually had, imagine having bishops and priests and deacons who might, you might confess a sin and they might punch you or beat you up or slap you. That was really a problem, if you can imagine. Paul says, what are you putting up with these crazy people for? Because they were impressive. They had a lot of money. They, they were slick. And, and, and the people fell for it. And Paul's not happy. And hence he writes this text here. So, takes control of everything. Verse 20, slaps you in the face. 21, I'm ashamed to say that we're too weak to do that. Meaning Paul said, I would never dream of that. You know, you think they're so strong and great. But he said, I, I, I'm too weak. I'm not cool enough to, to imagine to take advantage of you and to, to harm you. I'm here to build you up in Christ. That's what he's saying. But whatever they dared to boast about, I'm talking like a fool again. He's saying, because these people are boasting and they're silly, but nonetheless, I dare to boast about it too. Are they Hebrews? They claim to be from the right tribes and they spoke Aramaic and had all these things. You know, went to Harvard, we went to Oxford. We they're, they're, they're holding their substance based upon their credentials. He says, are the Hebrews? So am I. Are the Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Now, Paul as a Roman citizen was not allowed to be whipped. But when mob violence happens, they don't always ask your citizenship, by the way. And by the way, this is only about two-thirds through his ministry. We know he was shipwrecked again, and other bad things happened to him after this, by the way. So in Acts 27, there's a shipwreck. That's not even here. This is before. He wrote this section before Acts 27. Three times 25, I was beaten with rods, which is what the Romans did. The lashes, the Jews, the rods were the Romans. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. 26. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, 
in the deserts and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty, and I've often gone without food. See how the, why the church is putting this here? Saying, hey, let's don't think we're self-righteous in our fasting. We want to really fast. We want to really take this serious in this season. But we don't want to think we're anybody. And we don't want to be comparing to anybody else. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. 28. Then besides all this, and this is New Living Translation because it's just a little bit easier to read. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden. And this is what he really wore him out. I have the daily uh, burden of my concern for all the churches. He would hear about the false preachers and he would fast and he would pray. Can you imagine? Some of us know the sleepless nights of worrying about children, our, our siblings, our parents that are going through horrible times and, and, and heartache. And some of you have really gone through it for years, struggling and praying uh, and pleading with the Lord for people that we love. You know that kind of burden. Paul says, yeah. Yeah, you're not, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. That's, that's what happens to people who really love Jesus, is that this is a really wicked world, a really messed up world. And, and people who really love him often go through really, really hard times. Uh, and it's not a sign that there's something wrong with you or you're in the second team. This is what happens to people uh, who really love Jesus in this wicked world. I had the daily burden of the concern for the churches. He says, who is weak without my feeling that weakness? He's saying, I, I love the church so much. I love the people so much uh, that, that my heart's broken and it hurts me. There's a spiritual connectedness and I'm experiencing it. Who is led astray and I don't burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. So he's now given them this ironic list compared to all the bragging that the false teachers were doing, the legacy that the Romans love so much. Uh, a lot of commentators will say that even non-Christian Romans would have almost been laughing because this is such the opposite of how a Roman would look at uh, the things that you'd want to be known for. Uh, and, and then he says, but then he takes the oath. And the oath he takes would have been understood by everyone who listened. In Corinth, in the Roman Empire, it was the oath that's the opposite of the corona uh, muralis. And he takes the oath of the corona Christi, the oath of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy of eternal praise, knows I'm not lying. And this is, this is what it's about. This is how you know that I'm the real deal, not because it's a victory parade. Everybody wants to go in victory, but nobody wants to walk with Jesus in the cross. Listen, there are days of great resurrection. There's days of great healing. But I remember asking the Lord, Lord, I want to uh, you know, I want to see more power, more healing. And, and the Lord spoke to me one time. He said, he said, Ron, you want the power of the resurrection, but you're afraid to die. I don't mean physically die. Meaning you're, you're, you're afraid for bad things to happen. You want a, a world that's got no problems, everything got enough money, everything's great, and, and, and still walking all this power. He's like, the only way you learn to walk in the power of the resurrection is to face the dark days and the difficulties and the heartaches. It's in doing that and trusting me that you experience the power of the resurrection. All right, on yours, turn to the very back and the bottom. I'm going to do four quick points about Lent as we, do, as we close for this morning. 
Remember, for us, Lent is an opportunity to make ourselves empty, asking the Lord to fill us. As we approach Lent, number one, there's four points. As we approach Lent, we look back to men like Paul, who faced adversities from without and within, from within the church and without, outside. And we cannot help but admire his sufferings for the gospel. As we consider our own lives and the sufferings and the adversities which we we have been and will be called to endure, May we embrace the spirituality of the cross in hope of receiving our crown. Again, everybody wants the glory. Everybody wants resurrection. And then I realize we're supposed to follow Jesus Christ. Christ suffered for you, leaving you example. 1 Peter 2.21. I was foolish enough at about 20 years old to say, here's my life verse. Not a smart life verse. Christ suffered for you, leaving example, fall in his steps. We need a spiritual eye of the cross. There's a lot of victory for the people who love the cross. Okay? But there's also a lot of cross. Three, so we must fix our eyes on Jesus and not look around and compare our circumstances. This is the hardest thing for me. The hardest thing for me is to compare it to other good people. They're not bad people, and God bless them. They didn't do anything wrong to get what they have. But I look and say, man, doesn't that look easy? Everybody's life looks easy. And the reality is we have the grace for our own lives, so we wouldn't have the grace for that life. We must fix our eyes on Jesus and not look around and compare our circumstances, our health, our finances, and our spiritual gifts to others. That's very hard. If we don't learn to capture, to take captive our thoughts, it's impossible. And we'll be tormented in comparison that we don't have to go through. And that, that's a hard, hard thing, but we, we've got to get on it or we're not going to be able to advance. When we do this, we are listening to the accusation of the enemy and becoming envious of others and offended at our God and Father who loved us so completely that he sent Jesus to die for us. There's a lot of people carrying a lot of offense at God because their story isn't the easy one. Honestly, it took me about 45 minutes. Ken sat there nice, like, I don't know what was going on inside. But when the bus burned and we're in the desert and they say the bus might probably not come to tomorrow at 10 a.m., I'm thinking about all the other people that, that the bus wouldn't burn, that they would be uh, doing and getting there another way. And there's an offense at God. I was surprised. I mean, I'd love to tell you, I was expecting that this would go and I would just be perfectly fine. I wasn't. On the inside, I'm just like, oh, this is really bothers me. And why did this happen? And da 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 And because I'm comparing and thinking in all the wrong places and all the wrong ways. Got to be careful. Some of us, we can't move on because we're offended with God. We're blaming God that our story of walking with Jesus and, and dying to ourselves and walking in his life isn't the same as someone else's. Finally, and in closing, this life is full of adversity. And Sex Agessima Sunday reminds us not to misinterpret our circumstances as rejection or that somehow we're not... I mean, imagine what Paul went through I'm thinking to myself, I can't imagine being whipped one time and not being really upset with God. I assume he wasn't perfect. I'm sure he must have had some bad days. He learned to figure out that God was with him. and all, but, but it wouldn't be easy to go through all these things and wonder why didn't God intervene before all these bad things happened. Life is full of adversity, and Sex Agessima Sunday reminds us not to misinterpret our circumstances as rejection 
and get sidetracked in self-pity and offense. Self-pity is the, probably the biggest character weakness that I have that I'm aware of. I may have a bigger one that I don't know, but that one, I get this whining part that I'm working on. And Jesus keeps dealing with it, and he keeps saying, let's get to the root. We won't grow like that. And if we suffer, we must guard against the tendency to become self-righteous. I don't know that, well, I haven't met people like that. There must be out there people who have suffered so much that they feel self-righteous. My hunch is it's much harder for us to deal with feeling that God's rejecting us and, 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 and wallowing in self-pity, my instinct. But maybe that's just speaking out of my own sins and weaknesses. But this is a great opportunity these next weeks for us to fast and to turn to God knowing that he's going to answer. We have a God who we know that at the cross raised up Jesus in three days. We have a God who has staked himself fully on our side and wants completely for us to be holy and to grow as people. If we give him the smallest of opportunities, our God is going to bless us and help us and strengthen us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Lord, it's hard to take in what Paul went through. To imagine how he handled emotionally and mentally what it would seem would it suggest uh, by every account and all of his enemies were saying that, that you weren't with him when in fact you were. Lord, I pray because there's some people here this morning who've really gone through it. They know the traumas and the shocks and the, the heartache and the uncertainty that things were ever going to turn out right. And, and the enemy has still got some places uh, in their hearts this morning. I pray, Lord, for healing. Particularly, Lord, in the chronic grief and the fear uh, that things were not going to turn around. Even though they have, the fear of that has blocked them. And I pray now, Lord, that you would come and you'd pour out your spirit. Lord, I pray that they would begin to, to reinterpret even these terrible, terrible things. Lord, you didn't send them, but you got us through them. Lord, that we could see your love and your faithfulness, even though we don't understand why. We thank you, Lord, that if why matters, one day we'll get a chance to ask, and you'll tell us. In the meantime, we pray, would you help us? Uh, Lord, uh, would you open up the parts of our heart that have shut down and died uh, because of these heartaches and places where uh, we were so overwhelmed? Would you meet us in our darkness? And, and Lord, I pray in this season of fasting, as we give ourselves to you and, and choose uh, in the smallest ways, Lord, to be empty, we pray, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? We really need you. If we knew something big to do for you that we could do without messing it up, we would do it. But Lord, all you've given for us is to humble ourselves and in these ways to fast. And so we do. And we say, Lord, help us, bless us. And Lord, I'm so grateful that we get to do this together as a family. Uh, Lord, that we get to walk in this world with the ups and downs together. Strengthen our love. Pour out your spirit now as we commune with you. Uh, Lord, feed us with the body and blood of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask these things because you love us. So we ask them in confidence. And in Jesus' name we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven.